You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tracy Diamond from the Programs and Publications Department of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to Writers Live at the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. Thank you for joining us to welcome Dr. Lydia Kang to Baltimore. So tonight, Dr. Lydia Kang, a practicing internal medicine physician and author of adult and young adult fiction, will share from her book, Quackery, A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything, co-written with Nate Peterson, a librarian, historian, and freelance journalist with over 400 publications in print and online. So Quackery offers 67 tales of outlandish treatments complete with vintage illustrations, photographs, and advertisements. You'll read about times when a puke chalice was in vogue or how families passed down heirloom pills. Yes, think about how you have to pass those down. (laughs) Kang and Peterson write with fascination, horror, and dark humor. The platitudes, no pain, no gain, and what doesn't kill you makes you stronger come to mind while reading that caked blood on a coat was a sign of a good surgeon or that electric, unbreakable corsets were top of the line. Many of the proposed remedies were comically useless and wildly hyped, yet conventional wisdom was that a poison is not a poison in the hands of a physician. While reading Quackery, you may begin to wonder what products are peddled today that could elicit another volume of the book in 100 years. It was painful to be a human, and it still is. Here to provide levity and wisdom in the quest for health, Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Lydia Kang. Thank you. Um, can you hear me okay? Um, so, uh, thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you to Enoch Pratt. Um, it's nice to be back home. This is actually where I was born and raised. Um, 18 years in Baltimore, and um, I have been since then uh, 16 years in New York City and 10 years in Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I now live with my kids and um, practice medicine at the University of Nebraska. So, um, oh, whoops, hold on a second. Make sure I get this right. Okay, so um, I do write um, other books as well. So uh, Quackery is my first nonfiction book. I was really excited to uh, work on it. Um, Before that, Control and Catalyst were actually my first books I ever wrote. They came out in 2013 and 2015, and they are both young adult science fiction novels. Um, My most recent um, adult, it's my first adult book, is A Beautiful Poison, and um, it kind of melded medicine and the birth of forensic medicine in New York City uh, World War One, the influenza epidemic, um, all in one, together with a murder mystery and a lot of poisons. Um, so that one just came out in August. And my mo- most recent young adult book is The November Girl uh, with Entangled Teen and Macmillan, and it just came out uh, about a week ago. Uh, that takes place on Lake Superior, and it was inspired by um, the song The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald um, by Gordon Lightfoot, one of my most favorite songs. It's a heartbreaking song, and I knew someday I was going to pay tribute to it, and that's what this book is about. The November Girl is actually the Witch of November who takes down ships. Um, So, but we're not going to talk about any of that today. We are going to talk about quackery. Um, Now, what I'm going to do is take you through a little tour of the book. Uh, There's too much in the book to talk about in one evening, so I figured what I would do is talk about some of my favorite subjects in the book, And I figured a a good place to start would be with snake oil. So um, it's interesting, depending on my audience, sometimes I've I've asked, you know, students in middle school, who's heard of the term snake oil or snake oil salesman? And no hands go up at all. (laughs) And I look at them and I go, I can't believe you don't know this. So um, the term snake oil 
is you know, a product that is a fake or someone's out there just to make a buck off of you. It doesn't work. Um, and a snake oil salesman is a charlatan, someone who is uh, doing their best to make money off of you, knowing that what they are trying to hawk doesn't really work very well. But the story comes from a very real person, Clark Stanley. Um, in the late 1800s, he was at this um, exposition, and he made this very, you know, show showy uh, um it was pretty funny because he basically took a snake, a real live snake, and it was a rattlesnake, and he had a vat of boiling water, and he killed the snake and plunged it into the boiling water, and when the fat rose to the top, he skimmed it off and put it in some jars and sold it. And he claimed that his snake oil liniment could cure anything. You have achy joints, you're not feeling well, Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment could fix it all. Well, by the time they actually got a chance to look at the contents of the liniment several years later, they realized it didn't have any snake components in it at all. It was just fake. Um, the interesting thing about it, though, is it was born of a concept that actually made a lot of sense. Uh, in the 1800s, when they were laying the railroads down across the United States, there were Chinese laborers who were doing a lot of this work, and they brought with them a... Um, a medicine that was made of Chinese water snakes. It was also a liniment, and they used it on their aching joints. Now, um, the fat of Chinese water snakes actually is very high in omega-3 fatty acids, which does have some anti-inflammatory um, activity. And Clark Stanley saw this, thought it was exotic, thought he could make his own. But the interesting thing is that uh, in the United States, we don't have Chinese water snakes for one thing. And for another thing, we have a lot of rattlesnakes, but they don't have as much fat in them as the Chinese water snakes, nor did they have the content of the omega fatty acids. So he was working on a concept that sort of made sense, but in the end, it was just kind of smoke and mirrors. So that, that's the origin, origin of uh, the concept of, or the term snake oil and the snake oil salesman. So, um, all right, on to the next subject. Does anybody know what this is? It does look like a knife. Can you be more specific? Yes, it is for bleeding someone. So you can actually buy these on the internet. You can get them on eBay. And I thought of bringing one with me on tour until I realized that the TSA would probably tackle me at the gate. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. <laughs> so this is actually called a fleam, F-L-E-A-M. And it is a knife that is used specifically for bloodletting. Um, if you'll notice, there is a notch on the side, and that's the notch. It's not the long blade that's used to cut. It's the notch that's used to puncture a blood vessel uh, for bloodletting. So we're going to talk a little bit about bloodletting because it is a practice that has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Nowadays, we see it in the movies. We kind of scratch our head and wonder, you know, if that person's really sick, the last thing you want to do is suck two pints of blood out of them when they really need that blood. And especially now when most physicians realize that um, we do as much as we can to keep people's blood in them and not spill it when we don't have to. But why did this happen for so long? I mean, it really was a main part of medical uh, therapies for a long, long time. And it goes back to um, the ancient humoral theory of medicine. So uh, this is a bit of a graph that sort of shows you some of the concepts behind humoral medicine. So they believed, you know, this is from the time of Hippocrates, so hundreds of years BC, that the human body, the health of the human body, uh, was based in the four humors. Uh, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. And these four elements were in your body in this balance. And when you were sick, they would blame the illness on an imbalance of one of those humors. So to get things back in order, you would do something to maybe get rid of the blood if there was too much of the blood humor. Or um, if you had too much of the black bile, you would give yourself something that would make you have horrible diarrhea and cause you to have this sort of blackish colored stools, and that would mean that you would get that black bile um, balanced out. They even you know, um, blamed people's personalities on whether or not you had a tendency towards one humor or another. So if you see yourself looking like one of those four people, you'll see that's what, that's what they said. You look like that because you had too much phlegm or too much blood. Um, there were relationships with the times of the year, the earth elements like dryness, wetness, fire, that sort of a thing. And so for 
most of this time, it was often thought that blood was um, a dominant humor that tended to be out of whack more often than the other ones. And that is why bloodletting was so commonly used to treat so many things because they blamed it, they kept blaming it on too much of the blood humor. So this is um, a different way of taking blood out. You know, what I showed you before, the fleam, is actually a pretty big knife. You know, it's about this big. Um, and oftentimes they use that on uh, larger people and horses, actually. Horses were bled and they still are bled today, um, as someone recently told me at one of my meetings, um, that it's commonly done with some thoroughbreds after a bad race when they go into heart failure. Uh, but uh, other methods of uh, bloodletting uh, existed as well. And this one is called a, a scarificator, which sounds like a movie, a gory movie. Um, it's from around 1820 to 1870s. And you can also get these on eBay. Apparently you can find all these things on eBay. Um, the, the way the brass scarificator worked is that it had um, somewhere around 15 blades in it. And it was spring-loaded, so you would put it against somebody's arm, um, sort of touch the little trigger point, and then the blades would just you know, kind of impale your arm and you'd have all these different cuts. Ideally, that was often used with um, a cupping method. So they would take a small, uh, small glass cup, um, heat it over a flame, and they would put the cup on top of the uh, they would put the cup on top of the cuts. And once it formed a seal and the air inside the cup cooled, it would suck out more of the blood. So scarification scarification was often used um, with cupping as a method. Um, now, most of the time, when bloodletting was done, it was done in a classic way, which was um, from the upper arm, the basilic vein, which is sort of located right, right here in your arm. Um, many of you gentlemen probably recognize that pole from outside a barber. I mean, who here actually goes to the barber and there is a pole still outside of your barber's place? There you go. It's still around. It's still around. Do you know what colors are on the pole outside of your establishment? Uh, certainly red and white. I don't know if blue are. Okay. I think it's just red and white. So it's just red and white. It's not always red, white, and blue. Sometimes it's only red and white. Um, but the history behind this uh, goes back to uh, bloodletting. Um, tonsors in Roman times and also in medieval times, there were surgeon barbers who were the people who took care of bloodletting. So it wasn't your physician like me. I would order the, the, the surgeon barber to take off a pint and they would scurry off over and get that done, along with getting your nails cut and your hair trimmed and your rotten teeth pulled, your boils lanced. Uh, they did all those kinds of things. Um, so what they often did was um, put a tourniquet up on your arm. Um, oftentimes it was a white cloth and so that sort of symbolized the white. Uh, when you get your blood drawn at the doctor's or something, you probably are used to having them put a tourniquet on and they will say something like, pump your fist, right? So uh, instead of pumping your fist, oftentimes they would have you hold on to a pole. And the reason for that is that it helps the blood flow come down to your arm and allows for more venous backflow so you get a better bleeding. So they have you holding onto the pole, and hence we have the pole. Um, at the bottom of the pole, there was a little bit of a dish. And so sometimes you would hold the pole downward. The blood would sort of run down your arm, down the pole, and collect in the dish. Um, so there's the red color that symbolized the blood as well as um, possibly the artery, except the, they weren't really using the artery. It was the vein. The blue oftentimes um, symbolized the blue color of the vein. But this is where this comes from. So barbers way back when were the ones who were doing a lot of this bleeding, and that pole was actually a very useful instrument for them. So next time you get your hair cut, you can ask your barber if he knows his bloody history <laughs> and where he actually uh, you know, got his trade from 100 years ago. Okay. So we talked about using fleams, we talked about using scarificators and good old-fashioned tourniquets. Um, there were other ways to remove blood from the body as well. Um, this is a woodcut from 1638 that shows a lady putting some leeches on herself and she's got a nice bowl full of leeches. So why do people use leeches instead of bloodletting? Any ideas? Yes? Because leeches eat the dead blood from under your skin. They can. Why else might they be used? Yes. To suck the blood. To suck the blood, right. Uh, who here has ever been bitten by a leech? Who's ever been? No, who's ever been bitten by a leech in this room? Anybody? You have. When you got bit, do you remember getting bit? No. 
because leeches are very stealthy about biting. So in their saliva, they have an anesthetic, which means that when they bite you, it just goes very numb very quickly. Um, and they also have an anticoagulant in their saliva, which is a blood thinner. So that way they can bite surreptitiously so you don't know what's happening because the last thing they want you to know is to see it and slap it off or pull it off because they want a nice long drink, right? So they will drink, they will bite surreptitiously, quietly, painlessly, suck out about anywhere from a teaspoon to a tablespoon of blood depending on the size of the leech or how long it stays on. And then when they're full, they just let go, roll off, and go on their merry way. Well, leeches, compared to a knife, is a lot gentler. Uh, some people found that it was more humane um, as a means of bloodletting. Um, the great thing about leeches is that they are small, which means that um, you can use them sort of in all these different parts of your body that you might want to not want to do some bloodletting. So oftentimes there was this idea that if you can bleed close to the place where you were having a problem, you would help that problem better. So for example, if you had a headache, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to do bloodletting from your head. What are you going to tourniquet? You know, your neck, it doesn't really work out that way. So um, leeches might be used. So they could apply some leeches to your temple or behind your ear if you had an earache, to your stomach if you had a stomach ache. Leeches were used anywhere and everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. So they could be used in your armpit. Um, on the gentlemen, they could be used on the testicles for ladies. They could be used internally. They would sometimes have them applied to a cervix. And they were also applied rectally. So they were actually rectal leachings that were happening too. So if they thought that they needed to take care of that area, there was actually a special rod that had little grooves where you could put the leeches and up it went. And Yes, I'm so sorry. I hope you guys already <laughs> ate dinner. <laughs> I hope everybody, I think I, I noticed a couple of people sort of like crossing their legs going, oh my God. They had chairs for it with holes cut out in the bottom so you could do like, you know, rectal leachings. It was, they, the poor leeches, honestly, it was really, it was really, you know, kind of sad. Um, these are a couple of leech applicators because interestingly with leeches, you know, if they're hungry and you pick them up, they're going to swing around and try to bite you because they're hungry. So these were a couple of glass um, leech applicators where you can put the little squirmy guy in there and then, you know, apply it to the place where you want it to. Uh, they even did leechings like inside your mouth or on your tonsils. But obviously they didn't want you to swallow the leech because they, they, one, for one thing, they wanted to reuse the leeches. This is not in the time of single-use anything. So, and leeches were hard to get by because they became so popular that it was, um, there was a, such a huge demand in England and the United States that um, there were millions and millions of leeches being imported, and there was a, a demand, so they wanted to reuse them if they could. So sometimes they would um, sew a silk thread through the, the tail of the leech, and then they would sort of put it down in your throat so they could get it right on your tonsils. And when the leech was done, instead of accidentally you know, choking on it or swallowing it, they would just yank it up by a little string, and they've got their leech back. Um, they had all different, there are books and compendiums on how to take care of leeches and keep them alive and all sorts of things. And the leeches didn't always want to do their job. I mean, sometimes they, I found out that they, you know, you, they can feed, um, have a blood feeding, and then six months later, they're, they're still fine. So um, the doctors or the, you know, pe medical people who are using them might be like, no, no, we need you to eat a little bit. So sometimes they would dunk them in wine to get them in the mood. Sometimes <laughs> they would... Um, cut the skin a little bit, get a little bit of blood flowing just to sort of, you know, entice it to, to take a bite. And when they wanted to pull it off, you know, they didn't want to yank it off. Uh, they would, you know, flick it hard with their finger or pour some salt on it. I mean, these poor leeches were just, they just weren't, um, I don't think they had a quite a great life, especially when you consider, I read this one passage where someone wanted the leech to continue to, to, to get the blood out, but they didn't want to switch leeches. And so they just cut the tail off so it would like drink and drink and then never get full it was like the sisyphus of the leech world it's kind of terrible um so yeah they it was amazing how much was written on you know how to take care of them how to use them right how to reuse them um there were some cases where um there was one written case of a, a young girl getting syphilis because of a reused leech off of a previous person who had syphilis so you know and there are also cases of people who got bitten so many times by leeches that they bled to death. So it wasn't always such a gentle treatment. Um, so, oh, I have a treat for you. This is 
Um, this is my pet leech. <laughs> I gave a TEDx talk in Omaha several weeks ago, and I brought a leech with me to make a point on to the stage, um, but I also realized that if I did that, I would have to take care of this leech for life. So uh, here's what he looks like. He's actually quite colorful. He's like red, green, a little bit of purple. I hate to ask, but what do you feed him? Uh, not me. <laughs> My kids have uh, refused to let, let him eat off of me. Um, we feed him little cubes of defrosted um, beef liver, and we drop it in there, and then he gets really excited. He starts swimming around the bowl, but then he can't find it. So then we have to sort of bring him closer to it, and then he sort of sucks onto one side and then the other side. And then um, at some point in time, he stops and keeps swimming around the bowl. Like, he seems to recognize that he's on some sort of diet because it's not... It's like not the real thing. He doesn't get full. Um, but so far, so good. He's he's doing okay at our house. But yeah, that's our pet leech. His name is his full name is George Leechifer Leechstenstein, but he goes by Leechifer, Dr. Leechstenstein, depending on who's in the household. He's, he does sit in our kitchen. Oh, he tried to escape once. That was really interesting. So he lives in a fishbowl, and we have a little piece of um, like plastic wrap on top. But after we'd had him for a couple of weeks, we realized he never went out of the water because he's a water creature. So this one day, I took the top off and um, went to work, took the kids to school, came home. And my daughter, um, I had dropped the kids off, and then I came home like 10 minutes after that, and my daughter came running in, and she was like, he tried to escape. I found him on the kitchen floor. He was like halfway across my kitchen floor, like the Sahara Desert of leech <laughs> leeches. I don't know what he was aiming for. It clearly wasn't beef liver because he's apparently unsatisfied with the menu at the house. Um, but yeah, she just plucked him up and put him back in the bowl, and now we keep the top on. So, so as we don't have wake up to have nightmares with Leecher for like you know trying to find us in our bed. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about gold now. Um, gold is such a fun topic because people wear it for jewelry. It's been around for ever as a substance that we have craved and wanted and we use it as money. Well, a lot of people have thought that gold is particularly special and must have some sort of magical qualities to it in medicine as well. And part of that comes from the, the idea that you know gold doesn't tarnish. Real gold, if you just leave it out there, it just won't tarnish like silver. And that immutable quality of it not changing um, made it feel like it was this really magical element above and beyond other elements. Um, obviously, alchemists were obsessed with making more of it. Um, but the problem with gold that they realized quite early on was that if you actually take a chunk of gold, a pure gold, and you swallow it, well, it's going to pass right through your digestive system and your feces come out pretty blinged out, but you didn't really do a whole lot to because you don't actually absorb the gold, the elemental gold. So for um, quite some time, people figured, you know, gold must be good for you somehow, but if we can just figure out a way to make it absorbable, then we've got our stuff. So in the Middle Ages, uh, around the 13th century, they finally figured out how to make this solution that was called aqua regia, which means royal water. And this royal water could actually dissolve gold. And once that happened, you could make a gold salt and eat it, and you could actually absorb it. So this um, aqua regia was made of this very toothsome concoction of um, nitric acid and hydrochloric acid. So yes, you can dissolve gold. When you do that, it turns into a gold salt called gold chloride. So that um, yellow liquid down there is a gold chloride solution. So yeah, great, it worked. The problem was when you drank it, it was the toxicity profile was terrible. So people would get something called auric fever, um, where they had fevers, chills, um, shaking. They felt really bad. So it was very easy to um, get poisoned by gold. Um, so they, they, they managed to accomplish what they wanted, but the end product wasn't very good. Um, another product that they had that was also absorbable was something called fulminating gold, which unfortunately would spontaneously explode. So Sometimes, you know, advancements aren't a good thing. Now, just because gold didn't turn out to be a great treatment doesn't mean that people didn't still use it to sell stuff. So there were people who would paint rocks and try to sell them off as the real thing or make cordials that they claimed had gold in them but didn't actually have them. Yes? They do use gold nowadays. 
to make an monoclonal antibodies. They do. And we mentioned that in the book as well. So there are several things that are actually in the book that seem kind of ridiculous or strange but have real-life usage, and that is one of them. Gold is also used in electron microscopy as well. And for a long time it was used, the gold salts were used in rheumatoid arthritis because they did help with um, swelling in the joints for RA, but most uh, rheumatologists don't use it because the toxicity profile is not very good and there are better better medicines today. Um, but in the late 1900s and early 20th century, people thought that gold could be this fantastic way of actually curing drunkenness. So there was a gentleman named Dr. Keeley who, um, granted, he had some very good ideas because he did believe that um, alcoholism was a disease. Um, he unfortunately also believed that he could cure it very easily. So he had this, um, he had sanitariums all around the country where you could go there um, if you were a drunk and they would line you up several times a day and give you a shot of something and you would also drink this gold elixir, this gold tonic. And after you were doing this for a couple of weeks, you would be cured of your drunkenness, sent out from the sanatorium off of alcohol and you'd be good to go. Well, the problem was when they kept on trying to secretly test his his drinks and things like that, like they didn't have any gold in it at all. And Keeley knew this, but he didn't, he didn't really say it out loud. He said, well, there's kind of gold in everything, isn't there? There's some gold in the soil, there may be some gold in the air, so it must be some gold in my, in my tonics. But when they actually tested them, if he handed a tonic over and said, test this, they would find gold. If someone secretly just grabbed something off the shelf and tested it, there would be no gold in it. Um, what they did find was in his um, injections and his drinks were things like cannabis, opium, alcohol. So it was full of all these other, you know, um, substances that probably made the alcoholics forget that they were missing alcohol because either they were getting alcohol or they were getting drunk on something else. Um, but that went on for a while and to his death, he never revealed the actual um, contents of his, um, his special elixirs. Okay, so on to the next subject. This is one of my favorite subjects of the book, mostly because it was the most horrific and shocking to me as a physician, but we are now going to enter the realm of corpse and cannibalism medicine. Okay, so what you see here is 1618, uh, the gallows at Tyburn, England. Um, and what's going to happen here is that some um, criminals, most likely young male, criminals are going to get hung and after the hangman or the executioner says okay they're officially dead what often happened was that people would go up to the swinging bodies and if they had say a wart on their hand or a boil they would rub it on the hanging dead body um, on occasion they would let the body down and um, cut their neck open get some blood and people who suffered from epilepsy would drink the blood because they uh, knew that this was a surefire way to take care of their epilepsy. So corpse and cannibalism medicine, as horrible and unbelievable as it is to us today, was a very commonplace thing for many hundreds of years. Um, those same executioners um, were in the market and the sales of human fat. So they often got to keep the bodies afterwards um, if they weren't, say, you know, given to a medical person for a dissection. And they would harvest the fat and sell it as a liniment or a salve um, for people who used it on all sorts of things. Uh, they used it for symptoms of rabies. They used it for aching joints or any kind of skin condition. Um, they called it uh, hangman salve and poor sinner's fat and um, man's grease, but it was a commonly used treatment that the executioners and their executioner's wives would, um, would sell. Uh, this is actually, um, shockingly, from the early 20th century, these are sterile ampules of human fat uh, from a German company that was selling them for, um, for use, and that's not that long ago. So this isn't necessarily just medieval stuff. Now, um, executions oftentimes were a really popular place for people to look for treatments, partially because there was a sort of magical idea of um, that when a human body dies, it still holds this spirit, this sort of healing spirit or healing power in it. Um, ideally, you wanted somebody who was young and healthy um, 
who had died a very sudden death. So the last person that you want to use for a corpse medicine is someone who's older, um, someone who has a chronic illness. You want someone who's young and strong and at the peak of their vitality when they die suddenly and hopefully violently because then all of their essence is still sort of in them, which is why you know drinking gladiator blood was a very popular thing, um, and the executions were also popular. You didn't want to use a hung female because females weren't considered like as strong, and you, again, you didn't want somebody who was older who had a, a, an ongoing illness. Um, now, outside of that, there were also other types of corpse medicine. Um, Egyptian mummies. So Egyptian mummies for uh, quite a long time were plundered from their tombs. Uh, they were ground up with spices and myrrh, um, lots of really fancy ingredients, and sold in apothecaries around Europe. Um, it was considered one of the best medicines, like top of the line. Um, if nothing else worked, you needed to use mumia, which was the medicine that they called it. Um, now the interesting thing is that mummies were used as medicine probably because of a mistake. So for a long time, there was this petroleum product that kind of came out of the ground that was called mumia. Um, and in Persian, um, mum was a, a word for wax because it was like this sort of waxy black substance. And they uh, used it in poultices and things like that. They thought it was very helpful. But at some point in time, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, someone cut open an Egyptian mummy, saw some of a sort of blackish material inside the corpse and said, oh, this is the same thing, but this is a different place that we can get it from, so that's what they were using. Um, and then mumia became really synonymous with medicine from Egyptian mummies as opposed to the uh, original petroleum product. So we're going to go on to another subject, which I'm sad to say opium and opium problems is not really left our civilization at all. It seems like it's getting worse and worse as we speak. Um, but opium has been used for quite a long time as well, um, alongside many of these very, very harsh treatments. So um, in the beginning of the book, we talk about things like mercury. I mean, nobody would willingly eat mercury nowadays because we know it's toxic. We, we freak out if there's too much mercury in our fish. We don't want mercury in our medicines or anything like that. Um, arsenic and strychnine radioactivity thing, radioactive um, water. These are all things that we know now were just awful. Um, back then, those were the mainstays of treatment, and they were really harsh. So antimony, for example, um, made you vomit pretty badly. Uh, mercury products generally gave you horrendous diarrhea. So in comparison to that, things like opium were a lot gentler. I mean, they made you feel better. They actually helped with pain. Um, and they weren't nearly as harsh on the body. So a lot of people really did turn to opium and opium products as a ways of making them feel better and curing themselves, even though it didn't cure anything. It just made them feel better. So um, a little backstory um, on one of the monsters of our day, heroin. Um, so while opium was being used in tinctures and pills and things like that, it was very easy to get. You could just go to your local store and there it was. People were giving it to their babies when they were teething. They were just drinking it for whatever made them feel ill. Um, now in the, um, in the uh, 1900s, excuse me, in the 1800s, um, they finally were able to um, figure out what was the main component in opium that made it so awesome, and that was morphine. So they isolated morphine, and soon after that, they also invented the hypodermic syringe. So that combination of having this very purified drug plus a way to give it intravenously um, created a lot of morphine addicts. Um, more, syringes at the time were expensive. They were hard to get. They were in these beautiful cases. So generally, the wealthy were the ones that were suffering from morphinism or morphine addiction. And they realized um, towards the, uh, the end of the 1800s, there was a big problem with addiction and they wanted to figure out a way that they could take care of pain that wasn't gonna be addictive. So um, the company Bayer in Germany uh, was kind of playing around with two medicines that had recently been invented. Um, one was aspirin and the other one was called diacetylmorphine or heroin. 
Now, they were trying to figure out what's, what, what can we use that's actually going to make us some money. And they looked at aspirin and they said, this is never going to make us any money. Let's try something else. So they looked at, um, they looked at, uh, at diacetylmorphine and they realized that they could use very, very little of it and have an effect. And they started testing it on themselves. And after they tested it on themselves, which is really not the way you're supposed to do things today, um, a lot of the, um, the people who were the guinea pigs said it made them feel heroic. And so heroin was born. The name actually comes from the German word for heroic. So, um, heroish. So heroin was born. Bayer thought this is going to be fantastic. It's going to be a great pain reliever. And because you have to use so little, because it's so potent, it won't be addictive. And it was sold that way. It was sold as lozenges, cough syrups, um, pills. And for about two years, everybody said heroin is the best thing ever. Physicians were writing about it in journals saying it's not addictive, it's going to be fantastic. And about two years into it, they realized how wrong they were. Um, a couple years later, um, we had the uh, Narcotics Act that got passed, and we started to, in the United States, really regulate the sale and creation um, and distribution of uh, narcotics. And Bayer took heroin off the market, and it, you know, on Bayer's, at least for Bayer, it was stopped being a product, but. Um, the damage was already done. So that's sort of the dark, it's kind of a very positive history um, as far as like what they were intending to do with heroin. Um, but in real life, it turned out to be this kind of terrible mistake that we see actually repeated over and over again when it comes to producing new medicines. People get very excited. They think it's the best thing ever. They start using it everywhere and then they start reeling it in as they realize that it's actually neither not as good as they thought it was, not as helpful, or the side effects are really quite dangerous. Yes? The other one, the second choice that Bayer had, aspirin, does do a tremendous amount. Yes. They can't earn any money from it. Not anymore. Yes, exactly. So aspirin, it's kind of funny how they didn't think aspirin was going to be a big deal, but aspirin is an, an incredibly wonderful medication with very strong anti-inflammatory um, Effects. It's an antiplatelet medicine, so it helps, quote unquote, thin the blood. But um, it has saved people from heart attacks. So it's it's funny how they they were kind of wrong about their first choice when they decided to go with heroin. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about mercury. So um, this is another one of those questions where I asked middle schoolers and they just gave me a blank look. But I asked them, how many of you have actually played with mercury as a kid? Yes, many of us, including our videographer. So, so mercury, um, as many of us know it, you know, it's the silver stuff that you found in thermometers, and if they broke, skittled around on the floor, and you could kind of play with it. Hopefully, you didn't eat it. Um, but I will talk about that in a little bit. Um, mercury is a fascinating element. It is the only metal that is liquid at room temperature. Um, it, ha it comes with the um, name hydrarium, I always pronounce that wrong, which means um, uh, water silver. Um, it's also called quicksilver. Um, the symbol in the middle is actually the alchemist um, symbol for mercury, and it is the only element that is named after a Roman god. And mercury has been a huge part of the medical compendium for a long time because it was used as a cathartic, um, as a purgative, to cause horrible amounts of diarrhea. Um, and it was used to treat many, many things. It was a staple in the medicine cabinet for quite a long time. Um, this is a woodcut from 1689, and it shows um, the various ways that mercury was used to treat syphilis. So syphilis was a major scourge on society for a long time. Um, everybody, it was very easy to get. It was spread through sexual activity. Um, the kind of syphilis that seemed to hit people in the past was really quite bad. I mean, people would have like holes in their cheeks and, you know, rotting, festering wounds. Um, the poor gentleman down on the right has a case of syphilis. So you can see he's got the pox with all the, um, the skin manifestations. Um, this poor gentleman in the middle um, who looks like he's inside a, a bomb or a, a, a barrel. So he is getting treatment for syphilis using a, it's kind of a spa treatment. So he's in the barrel, his head's sticking out, and underneath they're heating up a pan of elemental mercury. So when you heat it up hot enough, it vaporizes, and so you're getting this nice like vapor bath of mercury. 
So remember how I told you not to worry too much if you were playing with mercury as a kid, because elemental silver, elemental uh, mercury, if you swallow it, it stays mostly elemental, kind of passes through you. If you do get some mercury poisoning, it's because some of the mercury vaporizes and you absorb it through your intestines. So vaporizing mercury is like one of the worst things that you can do as far as toxicity, but they loved it because they felt that mercury was working if you showed signs of toxicity. So one of the ways that you would know that you were getting way too much mercury in a good way was um, you would you would create like pints and pints of saliva. So up in the top right, there's a poor fellow lying in bed and there's this continual waterfall of saliva coming out of his mouth because they, they, they would know um, we're treating you well if you're just like drooling like crazy, like just pints and pints of drool. So, um, so why did they think mercury worked? Because this was used for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. This was the staple treatment for syphilis. And part of it is because when you took mercury, you knew it was working on you. Like you knew it was doing something because it made you feel bad. Um, the second thing was that a lot of, um, a lot of illnesses, particularly syphilis, um, they're episodic. So syphilis comes in several different stages. And the natural history of it is that um, after the first stage, it just kind of go, the symptoms all just sort of go away after a few months. Um, and then a couple years, you're symptom-free. And then the second stage comes, and you get the pox with like the rash all over. And after a couple of months of that, that also goes away. And then you can have a third stage. So people would say, all right, well, it's come back, so I'm going to take some mercury. And they would, and guess what? It would go away. So they thought it worked. So the natural course of the disease really fooled people into thinking that it worked. Um, the same thing kind of goes for the common cold. You know, It's going to go away on its own. So anything that you choose to take is going to make you think that it made it better. Um, one of the diseases that crops up time and time again in the book um, is epilepsy. So seizures um, for many epilepsy sufferers are episodic. They um, will come, you'll have a couple, maybe one, and then you might have a couple days free or a couple weeks or months free without anything, and then you'll get, you'll get another seizure. And so it was very easy for people to say, hey, I just had a seizure, I need to do something. They take something, it's gone for a couple months, and they're like, well, it worked. So this was sort of a very common kind of repeating pattern that we saw throughout the book. Um, all right, so we're going to do a little bit of an um, archaeology lesson. So um, Benjamin Rush, who is one of our founding fathers, um, he was the physician sort of in charge of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, he was the person who wrote this very long set of papers that detailed to Lewis and Clark how they would take care of themselves on the trip if they were to get sick and how to stay healthy. And one of the things that he told them would be a really good idea would be to include um, his own proprietary blend of mercury and jalap, which was an herb that was a potent cathartic and made you have diarrhea. Um, and he called these pills his thunderbolts or thunderclappers because of what you did to the toilet when you took them. So... There are these wonderful documents that I read on his beautiful handwriting that basically said things like, when, you're not feel when you have some constipation, take one or two of the purging pills. And when you are not feeling right, take one or two of the purging pills. And if you feel an illness coming on, take one or two of the purging pills. I mean, it just went on and on. It was like he just used it for everything. He wanted them to use it for everything. And so they took somewhere around 600 thunderclappers with them on their trip. Yes. Oh, Lord is right. 600 of these. Um, now, when we know the, um, the pathway that Lewis and Tark Clark took across the United States, but um, for a long time we didn't actually know what their specific campsites were. So um, several years ago um, in Lolo, Montana, they did some excavating and they found a campsite. And through carbon dating and lead dating, they realized that this was probably the area where a campsite was set. And the timing of it and the dating of it seemed to match... Um, the time that Lewis and Clark would have passed through. Now, the expedition was a military one, which means that they were following um, the instructions of something called the Military Blue Book, which told them exactly how to do everything precisely the way that you would do in the military. So every time they had a campsite, the Military Blue Book would say, you have to put your latrines 300 feet away from the kitchen area, which is a very 
safe and sensible thing to do. So in Lolo, Montana, when the archaeologists found the um, kitchen campsite, they started sampling the soil in a 300-foot radius from there. And lo and behold, they started finding huge volumes of mercury in the soil at the right depth. And so they basically had a scatological bingo winner. And <laughs> that is how they were able to document that Lewis and Clark actually, literally, squatted in Lolo, Montana. <laughs> Okay, so we're just about finished our talk, um, but a last, um, last word on, on Mercury. So um, there's our handsome god in the middle, and he's holding, it's kind of hard to see, but he's holding um, some of the symbols that are, he's very famous for. Um, he, he's got the wings on his, on his little helmet, and he's holding a rod there. Um, and if you look very carefully, you'll see that there are um, two snakes entwined on the rod. Okay? So that is the caduceus um, that he is famous for. Um, Mercury is also known as the, the god of the fat purse and um, the quick tongue. And he's also, um, people call him the gods of, of thieves and trickery. All right? Now, in um, 1902, 1905, um, the U.S. Army Medical Corps um, decided that they were going to make their, their sort of symbol, and they grabbed um, the caduceus and they slapped it on there. Now, that was actually the wrong symbol. What they were trying to do was they were trying to use the rod of Asclepius, who was the Greek god of healing and um, of medicine, who, uh, if you look on the right side, that is the flag for um, the uh, um, World, World Health Organization. And you'll notice that um, the symbol on there is a single rod with a snake, no wings, no, no double no double snakes. So um, back when the Army Medical Corps made this mistake, it got repeated so many times that the caduceus has become synonymous with the medical establishment when, in fact, it's completely wrong. Not only does it symbolize, you know, a medicine that was used for all the wrong purposes, um, but also sim it's also like a symbol of the, the god of thieves and trickery, which is the last thing that you want to do when it comes to quackery and physicians. So it's interesting because I just drove by... A street here, like yesterday, and there was a physician's sign up that had the um, the caduceus on it, and I just I thought, God, I should email him or something because <laughs> you shouldn't have that on there. So most um, legitimate health organizations today, universities and um, national institutions, if they are going to put a symbol on, you will notice that it is the rod of Asclepius, and it is correct. Um, but a lot of times, um, they because a lot of people don't know the history, um, you'll see the caduceus improperly put on. Um, a sign or something like that, and now you got, now you all know that if you ever see that, you can point it out to them and say, "I think you've got the wrong rod there." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to finish up. Um, this is actually the last step of my tour um, that Workman sent me on, and um, my uh, co-author Nate Peterson has also finished his tour, so we're going out with a bang here. Um, you can find Nate Peterson on his website, natepeterson.com. He's um, so he is in um, Oregon and on the West Coast, and he is on Twitter as well. And you can also find me on my website, LydiaKang.com, on Twitter, Instagram, which is my favorite social media, and on Facebook. Um, if you ever have any questions, just shoot me an email. I'm always happy to answer them. Uh, and I think this is the part where we get to ask some questions, if you guys have any. But um, thank, you for, um, thank you for coming, and thank you for listening, and um, not being too grossed out by a lot of things that I saw a lot of... I saw a lot of faces tonight, a lot of, and ooh, um, so I apologize for that, but I hope it was entertaining in the process. I have two questions. Did you get your Lisa Leach on eBay? No, I, di I didn't. I think I got him on something like leech.com or, I literally Googled, I want to buy a leech, and... It showed up, and I bought him. I think he was like $7, and he came in the mail in a little package, and I plunked him into some water, and he started swimming around, and I thought, I can't believe I could. I just did that. <laughs> but now we have him forever, so, you know, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Secondly, where does the term quackery come in? So, so quackery, the term um, is actually a, a Middle Dutch word, um, uh, quacksalver, which is a hawker of salves. So it's an old word um, that directly um, represents people who would stand on the street corners and try to sell their wares that you know maybe didn't work at all. Um, but it's a, originally a Dutch word. Yeah. Yes. 
I really don't think it's quite up to be what you're <laughs> advertising, but uh, the part of leeches, there are people who collect leech jars. Mm -hmm. They used to make leech yes. jars, and you could buy them, and you would store your leeches in those leech jars. Mm -hmm. There are many other things. Uh, Things people used to take uh, venom from snakes, mm -hmm. not snake oil, but snake venom, and use that to treat lots of diseases. Um, there are still people who uh, do that. Yeah, there are a lot of things that we didn't cover in this book and that we didn't research, but we know is, is definitely out there. Um, as for the leech jars, they are very much available, again, on eBay. I, I swear I don't represent them, and I have no stake in eBay whatsoever. But, um, but you can find them, and they're these beautiful apothecary jars where they would carry, um, keep leeches and carry them around with them. Um, leeches are interestingly still used today. Um, in very particular circumstances. So, uh, for example, if you were um, getting a surgery where in a very delicate place, so let's say like the tip of your nose got sliced off and it got sewed back on, um, because it's such a small piece of tissue and it's so um, susceptible to dying, if it swells up enough, then it cuts off its own blood supply and that new piece of tissue that you just sewed on might die. So sometimes they will put a leech on there and the leech will actually decompress some of the extra fluids, keep the blood flowing because of that um, blood-thinning saliva, and prevent that piece of tissue from dying. And so there are some surgeons that use it. And at the University of Nebraska, I asked one of my, um, my friends who's a, a, a pharmacist there if, we, if they kept leeches in the pharmacy, and they do. So it's still used in very rare circumstances in medicine. Some of the things you, you talked about were basically supported by what was used for science at the time. Yes. And others weren't. I'm, I'm curious about the ones that aren't. Have you any idea what it is that makes people grab on to certain things? Or have you noticed any patterns? I'm also thinking more modern things like the laetrile. Oh, yes. Uh, fad. Yeah. Maybe, maybe yes. Um, still, people are still doing it. So that's a that's a very good question. Like, why do some things catch on and, and find support where there is no scientific basis for it? Um, a lot of times, it seems to be supported by some of the great names at the time, who are a lot of people have some difficulty um, opposing them or aren't listened to. So, um, for example, um, uh, you know, Paracelsus um, is one of these great names who um, decided that a lot of the teachings of Hippocrates and Galen weren't really up to snuff because what we needed to do was instead of looking at the humors, look at the universe and the cosmos as this macrocosm and the human body was the microcosm. And if you find those relationships, you would realize that actually mercury was one of these elements that would cure a lot of things because it was like ash and, you know, these other um, elemental things. So he would have a theory that fit his world and was so bombastic about it and so talk. It is, exactly. It's part of his name. He was so bombastic about it, and he was so um, vehement about supporting this idea that he had these, these people gathered around him and believed the same thing, and it lasted for a very, very long time. And so I think a lot of it has to do with the cult of personality, who speaks the loudest and the strongest about something and seems to be making the most sense. Um, I think in a lot of other cases... Um, there isn't going to be one obvious answer as to why that is. Like you're talking about Laetrile, which is this um, idea that you can have this um, vitamin in your body. It's not actually a vitamin that um, is made of, you know, um, a cyanide type compound that will kill cancer cells directly. How does it know to do that? We don't know, but they say it does. And it has been disproven multiple times. But as long as there is going to be, you know, some 
so much of um, our facts and our research is imperfect, and it's very easy to find the cracks in the imperfections and use them to support your point of view. And I think that's the case with almost everything, not just science and not just medicine, is that you can use what you want selectively to, to make your case. And when you do that, it is very hard to argue with that person because they are so set in believing what they want to. It becomes very dogmatic. So I think that's one of many different subtle components to why quackery is still very much alive today. And while something that seems as ridiculous as lay trial, because it just chemically doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there are people who firmly believe that it still works and ask their cancer doctors about it still. So There are people who are desperate, and these people grasp at anything. If a desperate person winds up trying something and it works, you know, they tell everyone that it works, whether there was no yes. evidence of it, mm -hmm. and it winds up getting spread around. Yes. There were times at NIH when patients were trying very unusual things that the doctor didn't know about. And uh, eventually it was found out that these things didn't work, but they were popular because they had no other choice. Yes. So the, the power of an anecdote is incredibly strong, um, and the power of bias is incredibly strong. And so that, those are two things that I think are very recurrent issues um, that you see. Um, if someone that we trust says that they used some snake oil and it worked incredibly well, um, you will go along with that because you, you trust them. Um, a lot of the patent medicines in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s that were being sold all over the place and had these really ridiculous claims that couldn't be held up were based on the fact that a lot of their advertisements said, Mrs. Baker says that this cured her you know, hair problem immediately and I'll definitely buy this for everyone. I mean, all those things feed into your psyche and make you believe what you want to believe. And so they really do work along those lines of bias, which are these incredibly powerful, very subtle methods of manipulating all of us with everything that we do from day to day, whether we like it or not. The bandwagon effect or confirmation bias are all these very powerful ways of turning us to do things the, um, the way that somebody wants us to go in advertising and, and that sort of a thing. So, so yes, absolutely. Those stories um, can have the power to you know, have people do a lot of different things that they probably should. Yeah, can, can you say something about um, the, the origin of copper as a antiarthritic? And I believe some people also think it has some immune-boosting uh, function. Really, <laughs> 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 copper is not the one. Is not one of the ones that we studied um, a whole lot. So um, I know that it has been popping up in a lot of cosmetics, and it has been popping up in a lot of health supplements as well. Um, but I am not familiar with the research behind them, so I can't really speak to that. We did have a tendency in the book to. Um, stick to a lot of the sort of old-timey remedies. So m many of the things that are sort of more popular in the last decade or so, we didn't have time, nor did we have the, the pages to, to concentrate on them. So I can't answer that one. Sorry. It's volume two. <laughs> yes, it's volume two, exactly. One more question. Okay. I'm sure how far back... <laughs> how far back have people tried to come up with something to improve their sexual prowess? Forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, a lot of the, you know, we have a whole chapter on sex, and um, we're talking about ancient times. You know, people are obsessed with sex and fertility, and um, on the, from the male side as well as the female side, but it has never not been an object of interest. <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely. There are a couple of uh, recurrent themes that I mentioned, um, but as far as like you know, health quackery goes, um, sexuality, um, staying young, fighting off cancer, 
um, those are probably ones that you see time and time again because they're the ones where people are really reaching hard to improve upon the status quo as much as possible. Um, and that continues to be something that everybody's trying to, you know, people want to stay young forever. They don't want to be disabled. They want to live till they're 120 and um, they want to be having sex at 120. So it's just <laughs> never going to be a, 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 something that people are not going to be interested in. So. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kang, and thank you all for coming here tonight. Thank you very much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.